0: Hello, everyone. Uh, In this week's of the Hewlett-Packard Labs podcast from Research to Reality, I have uh, tremendous pleasure and honor to host uh, Soren, who is the uh, fellow and VP of AI at Strategy and Solutions. Hello, Soren. Hi, Dan. Good to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Uh, I have high hopes of this, extremely high hopes. I was looking forward for this one uh, for many weeks. Um, You have had uh, your very long and interesting professional career. Can you tell us a little bit uh, how it all unwinded? How did you get to where you are today?
1: So it started about in, I think, almost 13 years back when I was finishing my PhD and um, to be honest, I was looking for a job, right? And uh, my manager at the time, Uh, who would become a manager at the time, Jean-Jacques Drone. We had a couple of interviews, we discussed about uh, uh, parallelization and scalability and MPI, which were kind of entwined with my my PhD in AI at the time. And then basically he told me, where do you want to start? And I said, uh, in the field, I I want to go out, I want to travel. I was young, obviously, about 27 at the time. So I started HPE with uh, doing HPC post-sales activity. So basically going out after my PhD, going out and pulling cables and doing wiring and doing uh, installations and so on and so forth. And it was really interesting. I wanted to, to, to get out of, the, <laughs> out of the lab and just go out there and do the work. And then easily I realized that I wanted to, uh, to do something else. And from post-sales I moved uh, to a pre-sales engineer dealing with uh, HPC projects at the time. And uh, actually uh, helping uh, the sales to, uh, from the technical standpoint, supporting them, understanding the customer needs. Then I moved to very large pre-sales deals. I would just start getting three or four or five a year. And then basically after that, uh, I kind of said, okay, what's, what's next? And uh, from that, right, at about, uh, right, about, right about then, I think uh, we started to have this AI focus. And I, was, I said, okay, I'm going to push AI in the company. And nobody was talking about AI. So... We started looking at you know ambassadors and training them and suddenly all my years in uh, university masters phd all my ai years suddenly came back ramping and i was i, I realized that i was exactly where i was supposed to be at the time where i was supposed to be and then i gave it all and we did the uh, hands-on trainings and the working on projects and so on and then uh kind of everything changed when um the, the CTO of our company at the time, Mark, Potter, said, so well, I want to create this team in, in the labs who, who's supposed to look at you know, at uh, AI in front of customers and try to, to, uh, to bring together the, the company around it and so on. I said, that's where I am, fantastic. And then basically throughout the various years, I moved from, you know, from a specialist to master, from master to DT, from DT, I wanted to jump to fellow. And for that, uh, it was a, you know, it was a tough ride, but it was worth it. And then in the labs, I moved in the labs. Previously, I became a fellow from the labs. Then I've seen the struggle of the company try to get all the AI together. And I went to, uh, to some of the managers and I said, uh, I love the labs, but I want to make this right, to put this on the right course. And then I took the role of, uh, after becoming a fellow of uh, VP of AISS. And since then, which has been about, uh, Five months away five months ago then i'm just uh, we are we are at it, trying to uh to make uh, a name for hp now so, so it sounds, like a, yeah, sounds exactly. like a perfect
0: storm yeah sounds like a perfect storm it was a perfect but storm. A- exactly but ai wasn't uh always popular it went up and down and up and down can you give us a brief history of ai within a minute or two
1: yeah definitely so from uh, from that perspective well AI was never actually popular, right? So uh, initially, uh, when it started, people uh, uh, in the first part of, um, of, uh, of the century, basically, the previous century, in the 30s and the 40s, people were investigating a bit around the AI. They were not sure about what artificial intelligence is. They were not sure how to call it, and they, 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 uh, they various names, logical system, or it doesn't matter. So, but basically, it started even before that. And I wanted to give a quick example. It started with a guy. Which, um, with a Spanish neuroanatomist called Santiago Ramon y Cajal, at, at the point he was really curious about brain, right? How would the brain work, and so on? And then, using microscopy and special stains, what he did was was he realized that he can actually map the brain of a bird, for example, and so on, right? And that was a bit uh, he gave us with all the various uh, arborifications or arborizations and the various threads and wires. It looked like like a perfect uh, uh, electrical circuit imagine that this was done at the mid of the 19th century so obviously he he was not right there he was very ahead of his time so then what happens that what happened that was in the 40s somehow we had two scientists pitts and and, uh, mcculloch that actually looked at ramonica Hall data and said hmm that's very interesting. And then they went back and they looked at the anatomy of the eye and then they pushed down, they put, laid out the perfect circuit based on an electrical circuit and so on. And since then, they coined somehow the term of a neural network, right? So basically, you have all of these neurons that communicate with each other and that was the neural nets. But that was just, in, you know, I think they started working about 40, 43, 45. So what happens next? In the same period, you had a lot of advances, like Alan Turing in the 50s that was looking at uh, uh, intelligent machinery, and then he created the, the Turing test and so on. Uh, if a machine can f- uh, can fool a human that is actually a human, then obviously that machine bears intelligence. So, so there are a lot of a lot of things going on in parallel. And then what happened was that in the in the '56 there was a very quick conference where um, at Dartmouth. Um, and almost had basically they got together all the various scientists, and then the co- the term of artificial intelligence was actually coined by uh, by a researcher which was called McCarthy. Initially, they wanted to try various other names, but artificial intelligence was coined then. And then you have, as you said, up and downs, right? You had uh, the golden years uh, more uh, from the from the 50, 56 up to the 73, 75, where basically they tried everything and everybody used to actually throw money basically at, uh, at, uh, at artificial intelligence, right? So they were looking at NLP and uh, reasoning machines and they were thinking that actually, you know, uh, everything can be, um, uh, can be solved with AI. And I think even Minsky at one point was saying that within 10 years or something like that, all the problems that we have are going to be solvable by, uh, uh, by artificial intelligence, We are going to have a huge AI machine and so on. But then what happened was that it, the first AI winter, so to speak, came and it, uh, in the in the 75s, 70, 75, 74, 75, and lasted for about uh, five to six years. And it came because there, were, there was w- one guy in the UK called the, Mr. Hill, I think. It, and he published a, call, uh, a report called Hill, Hill Report and showed to the uh, uh, UK uh, Parliament and said, AI is coming short. So we are throwing all of this money, and they are just creating toy examples. right? And then at the same time, one or two years later, DARPA we withdrew all the all the funding from the various projects and then basically ai was more or less you know uh, let's say shelved right and um, then obviously came uh, um, uh, the, the the second period from the 80s to the uh, to the to the 90s which is the second ai summer so to speak where we discovered knowledge system the idea that if you have a knowledge base right, and if you have certain inference engine, which is used today, by the way, and then which is can use everything, like if then else rules whatsoever to query the knowledge base and give me an answer, that's a, a, that's an intelligent machine. So, knowledge base system exploded, and out of that something else was, was bought, was uh, called, which was expert systems, right, and then expert system was actually just looking at one single, uh, one single uh, uh, vertical, and then you're trying to to a question-and-answering system in that vertical, and boom, then a lot of use cases around the expert system and so on. The Japanese wanted to create a super machine that is able to solve everything and so on. So therefore, we had the second summer. But this summer was actually followed in the 80s, 88, 89, something like that, by a second AI winter, right? And this came because um, uh, there was a, basically we start introducing computers and you had your IBM and your Apple that are coming up with systems that was actually solving the same problem that the AI researcher promised faster or clo- close to the same time or even actually faster, right? So then DARPA at the time had declined, um, uh, has stopped all the funds from uh, from uh, from the AI researchers because they're not producing immediate results. So there you go. And then you had the second AI winter and so on. And then it was a small AI fall, so to speak, right, between the between the uh, 90s and the 2011. And basically the fall is named because it was not a boom, because nobody wanted to use the AI term as an AI, so they were calling their projects something else just to get to be able to get the funding, like you know, a computational system or cognitive system and so on, because AI was you know an overused word and so on. So in that period, you actually had a lot of uh, a lot of breakthroughs. Right? So also in this period, you had the Deep Blue that beat um, our favorite Kasparov uh, uh, champion at chess and so on. So there were a lot of breakthroughs there with the AI solving very neural problems. Then what happened was that in 2012. Uh, convolutional neural network happened, and computer vision happened, and deep deep learning happened, and now basically there's a boom in AI, which uh, everybody hopes that they're not going to have a third winter, so I would hope that winter is not coming, right? So now we're in Indian summer, late Indian. There you go, exactly. <laughs> That's a good one, yes.
0: Okay, so, so we have this popularity context. Uh, it was either uh, popular or not popular, going back and forth, but how does it impact business, the side of funding agencies?
1: This is where currently today, you know, if you're looking at um, the nice um, uh, uh, curve of actually getting getting acceptance of uh, of new technologies, right? Which Gardner is putting the web, uh, is naming the the very curve of disillusionment. It doesn't matter what it is, but mm-hmm. basically, if you're looking at that, uh, most of the companies today are trying to understand how to use AI. So some of them are already using it simply because um, uh, they use various uh, uh, models or algorithms which are very well um, uh, laid down, like computer vision, to solve uh, some of the some of parts some parts of their businesses. Like I, w- I would like, for example, to recognize people at the airport, or I would like to use AI in medicine to simply uh, tell me. Um, um, if uh, what is the region of interest in an x ray, or I would like to use AI as an energy uh, company to understand uh, uh, how much, uh, um, uh, energy, uh, how much current how much energy should I, should I put in my grid, or how to use AI to better uh, do the drilling and so on so basically companies are trying to use AI to either better process, to make something faster, to have the ability to simulate certain phenomena or simply to do something that they 've never done before. Right. So, um, uh, and this includes everything from, uh, for example, designing a better car or uh, doing a better customer support or, making sh- uh, or simply making sure that I have a better prediction for, 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 for the weather forecast and so on. So, they are trying to better their systems and processes to get faster answers. And then the, all those faster answers then basically get into better insights, better decisions, and basically they actually generate a, a changing business model. Right. Look, for example, at Amazon. But Amazon, the way Amazon works today, for example, or any online shopping, you're basically buying today and they're shipping it to you later, right? So, basically, this is the business operating model that they use. Buy today, ship later. Now, what happens is that they are actually bettering their models in in such a way that, or their AI, in such a way that they can recommend to you products, right? So, they recommend to you products, and then you look at the products, and then you say, oh, I don't want to buy this. So, currently, their products, uh, their recommendation system are basically 30%. Right, uh, they're right 30% of the time, which means that out of 100 products, you buy 30. So obviously, this, doesn't, this is not worth for them to change their business model. But imagine that they are bettering the models in such a way that their models are 90% accurate. Out of 100 products, you're buying 90. Then the whole business model is going to change. They are going to change from buy and ship to ship and buy. So basically, they're going to ship everything to you. You open the package, you say, hmm, I don't want it. You put it in front of your door. Basically, then they have some trucks uh, passing over. They get everything that you put in front of your door, and then you're done. So AI gives you this possibility to start from a simple model, to get predictions, to get insights, uh, uh, better decisions, and then change the business model per se. And we are not going to do Amazon or companies like Amazon are not the only one. Everybody's doing it.
0: So it's like bringing the the shop to your doorstep exactly okay.
1: which is most which is even damn which is even uh, 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 nicer to grasp is that they are going to tell you what are the products that you want yeah yeah
0: amazing uh you touched a little bit on on various verticals uh can you uh expand a little bit on this where, where what are the industry verticals that ai
1: can be contributing most to so currently today we, uh, so there, are. Uh, if you're looking at various reports and so on, but I'm not going to talk from IDC reports or Gartner or whatever, because everybody else can do that. In the sense, you yeah. can go out and read it. But what we've seen with our own customers is that we see a lot of moving in manufacturing, right? And in manufacturing, have a lot of use cases because there are people looking at, uh, you know, either for uh, for uh, designing a better product, but also to automate various uh, factory lines, but also to understand bet, uh, to understand how to... Apologies. How to uh, uh, pile, for example, how to look at stock, how to look at various part numbers from around the world. So there are various use cases in manufacturing. The other one that we see uh, also a lot is uh, healthcare and life sciences. And in healthcare life sciences, we see a lot of um, uh, hospitals, um, uh, research institutes, uh, nation, even, even in some cases, uh, uh, national governments that are looking actually on how to, uh, to make, uh, um, uh, uh, to better their uh, medical systems or to understand how to use AI for cut systems and so on. And this COVID, uh, 19 uh, uh, period actually accelerated that, accelerated the adoption in healthcare and, and, and so on. So, uh, manufacturing healthcare, we see a lot of use cases as well in FSI, in banks, for, uh, for fraud, for um, chatbots, for uh, keeping customers happy, for recommendation systems and so on. And then we see also some, we used to see a lot more in retail. But now, again, because of COVID-19, it's you know, it will to be down. But then you also have some others like uh, oil and gas and energy and so on and so forth. But the first stop are some how the priorities. And you have one, on overarching one, which is basically your government and smart cities and so on, but is looking at those and it's interconnected with the others. But again, manufacturing, um, uh, retail, FSI, uh, health care, life, uh, life sciences, government, energy. These are the ones that uh, they're actually looking a lot into.
0: There was a lot of discussions about autonomous driving, and uh, you know there are people who believe that AI will solve all the problems, uh, and then there are those who are very skeptic. Uh, wh- what do you believe is realistic goal in uh, five years, ten years, or whatever horizon you prefer to choose?
1: I think you must know that autonomous driving is one of my deepest passions. It's very close to my heart, right? And uh, also because it's one of the most difficult problems we uh, we've. Uh, AI is yet to solve simply. Uh, you need to you have this car that basically AI needs to learn how to drive, right? And uh, they are putting on top of all of the sensors to map the sensors to the map of to the action of the driver and then the AI to actually drive it. And you need to uh, basically see like a man, uh, feel like a man, uh, like a human. I do apologize. Feel like a human, uh, see like a human, you know, um, uh, faster than the human and so on. So it's a lot of variables that AI needs to learn that. Now, we are working closely with a lot of our customers, right? And from very traditional uh, car manufacturers to newcomers and startups and so on. So it's been a very, it's been a very, um, uh, it's a fast evolving market. Now, uh, the autonomous driving starts from level one to level five, right? And in level one, obviously, there is no intelligence in the car. And it goes to first uh, to the idea of uh, hands off, where basically the car is able to maintain the lane and to maintain a bit the, be able to change the lens so on. And it moves, it moves on until you have, you know, uh, uh, no, uh, no AI, hands off, hands and eyes off, mind off, no steering wheel, right? From, L to, from L1 to L5. Currently today, we are actually at about um, L2 plus L3. There are some companies that actually released uh, the systems or as uh, Tesla and others, they released the ability for you to actually keep your hands off, and then uh, from the steering wheel and then the, steer- the, the car to actually le- let you know either vibrate or beep deep whenever you need to put your steering wheel your hands on the steering wheel. So we are at level two, level three. And uh, I believe that in the next five years, uh, we are going to get somehow to, um, uh, to level, uh, level three plus level four. Level three plus level four actually is when you uh, basically can take your favorite Harry Potter book and read it in the car. Right? You still have a steering wheel in the sense you might uh, you might be able to, to somehow touch it. But also level four is also the time when they say that the car should be able to drive everywhere, everywhere there, which means it needs to drive in California or in San Francisco, but it also needs to drive in Mumbai, right? And that, is my, that might be a bit difficult, right? So le- exactly. I believe at level three, level up to level three plus between level 10 and level four would be at, uh, more than uh, attainable in five years depending on who you are listening to is going to be level four as well. I doubt it. Level five in 10 years, level four plus level five in 10 years, I think it uh, it is more than reachable, meaning that you read your Harry Potter book and you don't care about anything. So basically we are working with a lot of companies and my son is six years old. Right. And I'm working with these guys, hoping that he'll never get the driving license at 18.
0: Right, so but, the AI, but the AI will get driver's license in, uh, in 12 years, according to you. Is
1: that right? I hope so, yes. So I, 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 we are trying to push and to help these companies and uh, for, from, from everything. And this is not a technology, uh, you know, this is not a pitch for HPE, but we are both HPE. So we are helping them with infrastructure, with services, in some cases with new models ideas. And I'm trying to, we are trying to push the envelope just to make sure that my son doesn't, doesn't get the driving license, yes.
0: That's a good motivation. So, you have very nicely covered various verticals, uh, vertical markets. Uh, what about horizontals? What are the most impactful uh, AI horizontal technologies today? Deep learning, reinforcement learning. And then, can you tell us what is on the horizon? What are the next most important technologies?
1: All right. So, uh, that's a, uh, yeah. That's a fair question, in the sense that currently today, deep learning and looking at convolutional networks and natural language processing and some other uh, some other common techniques that is the is the is the base of the explosion that you see today in AI. Right. So uh, computer vision has come of age, and as I was saying earlier, everybody is using it. Natural language processing is about to come on of, uh, of age of age as well, in the sense that they have all of these uh, very big uh, companies working on this releasing uh, new algorithms every couple of months and so on. So it's kind of becoming a bit more difficult to crack than computer vision. But in the next two to three years, we're going to see more and more uh, uh, production-ready environments using natural language processing, right? So reinforcement learning is just around the corner. And uh, uh, basically, if you're looking, you know, you have various uh, companies that actually have pushed the envelope on that. And you're looking at, uh, you know, the famous, uh, Uh, um, alpha-go or alpha-zero, and uh, then you're looking at the the various algorithms released by the um, uh, OpenAI um, uh, team uh, in order to, to win a Doom and some others. So basically, reinforcement learning has not become of age. You still have clusters of companies that are actually look, uh, uh, working on it today, and you have various successes here and there, but they are pushing the envelope. And I was discussing even with some colleagues in the lab that in the next two to three years, reinforcement learning is going to become not necessarily of age, but it's going to become mainstream because you do need it's, it's a very different paradigm than, the, than deep learning and is solving very different other types of problems. But what we see in parallel that uh, companies are, are, are trying to, uh, to research a lot is how, because for, in order for you to actually get this algorithm on the go, you need data. And most of the qu- good quality data today, as we call it, needs to be supervised. Uh, and it needs to be, I do apologize, labeled data, meaning that somebody needs to look at it and say, okay, this is, uh, is Dejan, this is Sorin, this is Dejan talking, this is Sorin talking, he's Romanian, way doesn't matter what it is. So uh, this is coming to a change because not everybody actually has good quality data. So new, new, new uh, techniques in unsupervised learning on small data, on how to actually write better algorithms when you have um, uh, unlabeled data, Little data, small data. These are actually coming important, and they are coming towards us. The other very big issue is uh, that we see a very hot topic in AI today is the, the the whole idea of ethics, explainability, and how do we push that envelope? Because with COVID-19 and some other things that happened, people actually, uh, starting with last year, actually they took a step back and said, "Okay, so AI is giving me this answer, but how do I um, how do I uh, explain how do I explain?" What, uh, why did you take the decision? How do I explain, basically, apologies. Um, uh, what would change, for example, if I actually change this part of the data, or uh, how is it actually uh, biased towards a certain type of category or a class and so on? So they are starting to put ethical problems. So you have reinforcement learning, unsupervised learning, explainability, and also more and more people are going to take a step back and say, okay, I have this AI that is solving a very narrow problem, how do I create then one machine that actually is able to solve problems across the floor? That's a bit further out. And the idea of um, uh, uh, general, uh, art, um, a general artificial intelligence or, an, uh, or an, uh, a guy or an agi, depending depending who you're asking, is coming abroad as well from narrow AI to general AI. And this is something that is coming abroad. And it will come even faster when you solve unsupervised learning, reinforcement learning, explainability, or ethics, and so on and so forth. And what are the limitations? Uh, what are
0: the missing pieces in order for AI to pass that exam or to do many other things? Uh,
1: uh, <laughs> that's a great question. So uh, the limitations today are, so the, the, the first thing is, is I, I will not talk about compute power and so on, now, but the idea is that uh, there's a very big disconnect between research and companies. Right, most of the companies today are actually really focused about what can I implement today, and what can I actually have? Um, uh, I can actually, uh, you know, put AI in production very quickly in the next, I don't know, let's say uh, six months to twelve months, and I would like to enjoy AI today. And these, these are the algorithms and the models and the products that they are actually interesting. On the other side of the fence, you have. Uh, researchers, which are at the universities and so, on, and so on, at research institutes that are actually curious to actually take the next leap forward. What the, what the industry learned and what everybody learned was that if we're actually not making sure that AI is being put in production and fruitful today, even if you take the step onwards, and then you're researching the three to four years out, right? then the problem is that you might have another winter because people are going to take a step back and say, guys, you're researching here, I need the, the missing middle. So people are a bit more cautious. That being said, you actually have the, uh, the giants. So you have your Google, your Facebook, your uh, Amazon, and others that are actually marrying the two, right? They have products, but they, are, but they are getting researchers as well. And this is why the biggest amount of, of uh, research in these areas, like reinforcement learning, small data and supervised learning are coming from these giants, why? Because they are marrying universities with products, right? researchers so to speak and they create a group of people that are able to actually do research now with the applicability in their products immediately so that, that is kind of filling a gap so i don't believe obviously uh, we might need faster machines or we might need even more data or more label data it doesn't matter but that can be solved the problem is that we are in a in a, in, a, in a situation where the industries, which are not the, the top ones that I mentioned, the top players that I mentioned, but the industries, they want to put their own production today. And they need to do it with technologies they, that are ready today. While the researchers, they say, okay, I want to, to take a step onwards and do this. And there's a big disconnect. The hyperscalers and the, the big companies are solving this by bringing them together. But it's not something that will push the envelope very, very fast in the next uh, two, to three years.
0: So... In your future, there will be effectively many AIs. So, retailers will have AI to recommend products. Then, these products will go on self driving cars to your front door. They may communicate with you. Given uh, a plethora of these AIs, how will they be able to communicate and, and be compatible? Is there a future for standards? Is there a need for standards in AI?
1: <laughs> That's uh, that's, uh, um, a great question. Uh, From the point of view that uh, currently um, you have, from the technical point of view, we already have a a sort of a a, a standard, which is the ONNAX and so on, but that is more or less from the technical point of view, right? And I believe from the technical point of view, uh, uh, ONNAX is just the first one, but then you have uh, the uh, iOS and IEEE that are actually pushing AI standards now. But that's exactly the, because, but the, the problem is that they are actually playing at the level which is uh, which looks at explainability, ethics, some, uh, some technical and so on. And I think uh, this is just the first step. And this is at the level of, again, uh, uh, of the standard bodies. But you also have in US and China, they are looking at, uh, at uh, standardizing uh, various aspects of AI. The biggest problem, the the biggest problem will be not necessarily to write a standard, but to get everybody to use it. There is a need of standards if you are actually looking at uh, having a uh, having AI models talking with the other AI models across the floor register. So now a very good example is, and we've been we've been living it is look at autonomous cars, right? In autonomous cars, for example, they're various companies that are developing autonomous vehicles. right? But in the world of 5G and uh, speeding up to 5 6G, whatever will come, and then uh, two to three years when these models are a bit more mature, they would never really need to talk to each other. right? So the need for standards is that you know, if uh, uh, an autonomous vehicle is driving, it, it's, uh, it sees a certain accident, it quickly needs to be able to talk through the, through the network to all the other autonomous uh, vehicles in order to make sure that they know about the accident. So the biggest problem was the was, I wouldn't call it politics, but was they actually get all of these uh, manufacturers to sit down and understand who's creating the standard, which standard are they actually going to adopt because each of them has one. Each of them is thinking that theirs is going to be the one. So the problem then here is that from the technical standpoint, you are getting there slowly, and there is a need of standards. From the, uh, from the point of view of ethics and some other uh, and from the development perspective, you already have that done. In the sense, I, Trappoli, e, and others are actually moving towards that, but the uh, the point is that you need to get all the various players to actually to, to make sure that they are actually going to uh, to use one, and you we don't need only uh, uh, the communication, or you need to understand about what would be the you know in the case of uh, in the case of. Uh, um, Innovation and in the case of um, responsible innovation in the standard, and in the case of, uh, for example, simply investigating what uh, uh, investigating protocol if something goes wrong with the AI, an accident or something. So you might need a black box which actually goes in all the various uh, AI uh, hardware or software. And then out of that black box is a certain um, uh, standard protocol that actually everybody needs to be able to implement and the byte. Uh, by- so all of these are in discussions, but they're going to get more and more politicized either at the, um, at the developer level, at the, uh, at the industry level, at the government level, and so on. Is there a need? Definitely. Are we there today? We are trying to be. Are we then, Are we going to be there in two to three years? We have to. Let's switch topics a little bit. We spoke about
0: AI a lot. Let's talk a little bit about Sorin. Uh, Right. So Soren is originally from Romania, now he lives in Grenoble, France. He spent a lot of time in the United States uh, traveling although uh, I believe most of the time you spent on the airplane, at least before the corona. Uh, Tell us a little bit about that journey from the culture perspective, not just from the career perspective.
1: All right. So, um, yeah. uh, Well, um, I started traveling uh, even before I actually moved to France. I started traveling when I was about, uh, I think, 20. And uh, in the university, I did a lot of scholarships. Uh, you're European. So I think you heard about Socrates or Erasmus, yeah. right? All, all of these exchanges with scholarships and so on. So I started doing, uh, I did a couple of those. And then uh, I already realized that I love my country. I'm Romanian and there will never be anything else, right? But I realized then that uh, there is, the world is much bigger, right? The world is huge. So for me, uh, the target was uh, when I was 20, I said, and this is a personal target, it's, it's, it's stupid, but the idea was uh, the, uh, every year, basically, w- once you're 30, you need to visit a lot more countries than your ages. So if I'm 30, I'm supposed to have visited 30 countries. If I'm 40 now, I'm supposed to have visited at least 40 countries and not only visited land and go, but dive into, into the, you know, go eat somewhere local or try to understand a bit or talk to the locals and so on. So for me, it's, 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 HP has given me this opportunity of traveling around, talking with a lot of people, and then basically uh, learning a lot about the various cultures. So, Romanian, moving to France, it was a bit, um, uh, No, France is the country that I actually lived in more than Romania, which is for six years now, and I'm trying to learn the culture, speak the language, but it, it has been difficult because it's so different. Traveling to U.S., then it's even... It's a quantum leap forward, uh, forward in a sense, uh, onwards because U.S. is so different than France and Romania, right? And uh, uh, for me, I, I sometimes I feel that you know I understand the uh, U.S., I understand France, I understand the Romanian. At heart, I'm still Romanian because where I live, I, I'm French, and because of the company I work, I work on, I'm American, right? So to speak. So I'm trying. I, I, I I'm I'm am I'm a sort of a a mixture between all the various cultures. I'm trying to work with everybody. I understand everybody. And recently now, I started working a lot in India, which is yet a very different country as well. So every time when when you need to talk to people, you need to understand where they are from, you need to understand uh, how do they think, you need to understand, because something which is very obvious for me, it might might not be so very obvious for somebody else. So um, it has been a journey and I enjoy the heck out of it.
0: I love your definition of H index for travel, you know, just like uh, H index in references, you have invented your own for traveling. Uh, yep. With the young generations um, in the world, tell us the importance of finishing PhD. Uh, do you advise um, young students to pursue all the way to reach that degree or not?
1: So when I finished my university, um, I finished in parallel my university and my master, so to speak, because it was, a, you know, I, I wanted really to do nuclear physics and at the same time I wanted to finish my computer science. So I kind of did both in parallel it, it, in the last year it, it was a, it's a crazy story, but still. So uh, then I actually, I wanted to start a PhD and um, I, because I love the idea of doing research, right? And for me, research was, uh, was the purest and the greatest, you know, Purpose of uh, of in general, right? So do research, go find new things, help everybody. So, but then after um, after the, my PhD, and I'm going to go to back to your question, I realized that research is great, but now I want to see the applicability of this, right? And then I moved in the industry. What I would like to tell everybody is that uh, if you have the possibility of not starting right away into the industry, and started working, I know this idea of getting, you know going out and work and getting paid and you know saving money and so on but if for me the fact that i passed through almost you know three and a half years four years of phd it changed the way i'm looking at industry applicability of uh, of r d uh, designing products uh, and so on why because you understand the thinking process that goes in before It, it forms you to the idea that you need to listen to your customer, you need to listen to the researcher, you need to listen to, in our case, to pre-sales and sales and so on. So it gives you that overall, overarching view of everything. For me, it's shaped who I am. So if I am to recommend somebody, and I get goosebumps now, (laughs) for me, if I I need to recommend to somebody, go out and do a PhD, definitely. It will change your life. And then you can delay your decision, work or not work, by three years or five. Delay it, if you can. After those five years or four years, whatever, depending where you are, you can go out and you can work for forty years in your life, which is fine or whatever you. Push that decision out. The PhD, the, the 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 years of PhD are going to shape who you are. Are going to give you a better understanding of, of what goes beneath that you know that Alexa that you consume that whatever you. So do it. Definitely, it is worth. I would never. I would never have done it otherwise.
0: One of the. Um, most urgent matters today for humanity as a whole um, became uh, inclusion and diversity. And uh, I already know this sensitivity and uh, how important it is to you during this interview. But given your broad perspectives of living in Romania, now France, United States, do you see any differences and similarity how inclusion and diversity should be uh, applied and treated?
1: Also coming back to the previous questions, PhDs. The PhD, when I was doing my PhD, we were in an environment where you know, we are all PhD students. Nothing else mattered there. No, it doesn't, it didn't matter that you, know, um, that you are a boy or a girl or a man or a woman. It didn't matter that you are from Romania, from China, from Hungary, from US. It didn't matter the color. Nothing mattered. We are PhD students, You know, studying together, uh, climbing together, uh, having lunch together, everything was done together. And that kind of shaped also the way I think. thinking it doesn't matter who I have in front of me, the whole idea is to listen. So that kind of shaped me uh, thinking about the fact that, you know, uh, good ideas can come from anybody and there are no actually stupid questions or bad ideas. It's just, you know, the, the capability of listening. So that kind of taught me that, and this is what I have in my teams today. So in the team now we have, you know, in, an, in, the, in the AI extended team, you have, again, you have people from various countries, from various routes, simply because I believe uh, you need to listen. And you need to listen and you, you need, and if you see that people are actually talking, but basically they cannot relate to each other, what I need to do and what I believe that my purpose is, is to make them work together and understanding each other. They need to pass through their, dif- through their differences in order to create one team. So the PhD years taught me that, you know, we are all equals at the table of, at the table of AI in my case, right? So there's one big table, one big family, they sit down and they talk. So basically, if you fail to do that, and I'm telling this to everybody, if you fail to do that, you are going to miss your next uh, great idea simply because it's coming from somebody that you don't want to listen to. So allowing people to, uh, to master their ideas, including them and making sure that we are sitting at one big AI table is really important in the case of AI, for example. Otherwise, in the case of uh, you know, personal uh, uh, family and so on, I always tell my kids, don't judge, listen. And then if you, if you want to make an, a strong opinion later, that's fine. First, listen. And uh, you need to be able to understand uh, that from, uh, from, uh, you know, from uh, your colleague at school, from your friend uh, from, the, from the neighborhood, from your friend in Romania. I need to listen, listen to everybody. And also, this takes me back to the idea of being a globetrotter, right? So I've been traveling a lot. And I know that uh, uh, personalities and characters are shaped depending on where you lived, how you lived, with whom you lived, and so on and so forth, right? And over, you, you need to listen, and you need to make sure that you form a stronger opinion much, much later after you show sure that you're listening. So inclusion, diversity, definitely.
0: Top on my list. Great, great, uh, great explanation. I love it. And also um, a great advice to all of us. Thank you very much, Soren. Uh, I highly appreciate it. I, I learned a lot from you, and I hope uh, everybody else uh, did. Thank
1: you very much, Dan. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye.